0: Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. Actually, a church right outside of Portland, Oregon. So, anyway, uh, I've written some books. Uh, One of those books is uh, in the house of Tom Baumadel, and it's doing pretty well. Enough about me. Why don't we go around the horn and introduce ourselves? So, let's go to you,
1: Glenn. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor from Central Connecticut State University. Currently, my main job is I'm a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries. I'm also a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And I have a book that's in the pipeline now for Cannon Press.
0: All right. All right.
1: What's it called? My title, I don't know if they're going to go with this, is Christians Who Changed Their World. It's a series of short biographical sketches of people, um, most of whom you've never heard of, uh, who operating out of a Christian worldview made a major impact in their um, in their place and time, and sometimes longer. You know, ongoing That's great.
0: Effects. That's great. Okay, that, now let's go to you, Tom.
2: Uh, Tom Price. I teach systematic theology. I teach... Uh, Christian Ethics and Philosophy, one of the places of which is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And yes, I'm writing a book right now. It is in process, and it is taking shape and form. It is still a tease for all those waiting patiently. (laughs) Um, But it will be a big retrieval book in the sense of taking some of the riches that we have as Christians and bringing it to the forefront uh, some of which we've talked about on the show, but really developing in, in, in deeper ways, and then addressing some contemporary issues in light of that uh, wisdom. So it's kind of where we go. All with right, it.
0: good stuff. Good stuff. Well, it's it's your show today, Tom. But before we, before we jump into the topic of the day, we want to give up give folks a little teaser. Next week, we are going to be interviewing Arthur Kwan Lee a really marvelous artist who was uh, in the New York area. One artist of the year, he's a painter, was in the gallery scene and then was canceled suddenly because he simply let people know what he really thought. And uh, that's the kind of world we live in today. If you let people know what you're really thinking, it can cost you a lot and it cost Arthur a lot, but he's doing fine. And uh, so we're excited about that episode. It's coming up next week. We've already recorded it, so we already know <laughs> what Arthur said, and it was—it's great stuff. It's great stuff. So we encourage you to tune in next week for that interview with Arthur Quandley. But anyway, uh, let's jump into today's show. So, what are we talking about today, Tom?
2: Well, well, in some ways, we're talking about what leads to a world in which you actually can be—you con- know—cancelled. Um, <laughs> For using language a certain way, right? Um, and, and, and the way in which language um, becomes such a powerful weapon that if you don't say things in line with a certain kind of orthodoxy, you, you are a heretic, right? Um, and, so, and so, you know, how do we get here? Um, I'm not going to address all those steps, but I want to go back a ways and kind of lead to some of the things that led to the conditions to the world that we live in, to where this kind of thing takes shape. Um, Previous episodes, which I'm not going to rehash, have dealt with kind of the way in which Christian language functions in relationship to referencing God and then everything else. We talked enough about it by using this terminology, and the briefest way to just kind of reference that is, is that analogous talk is such that it doesn't violate, you know, the commands of idolatry when we reference God. So when we recognize that God can be fully God, whether or not God creates or not, and creation can be anything other than dependent on God as creator, we realize the, the theological vision in which our language takes shape. So any creaturely language when we refer to God is always qualified by this, that whatever similarity is there, it's also disqualified by a radical dissimilarity. So whatever positive thing we say, God is good like we are good, it's always qualified also by, but not good also in the ways in which we think we're good. God is always inexhaustibly richer and incomprehensible whatever things we share in similarity to God. So we may be like God because God is our creator, but God is not like us, right? That is, that is the kind of way in which language works. Well, anyway, the world shifts at, you know around 14th, 15th century in which God no longer is the, the ground and source of all perfections, right? Um, God becomes one more thing within this circle in which God too has to have them added to God in order to to participate in them. So if you say God is holy and creatures are holy, they both have to participate in some larger category of holiness in order for God and creatures to participate in it. Um, If you go back to Duns Scotus, it was really the the issue, the question of being, right? Um, For Duns Scotus... Um, God is not being itself. Rather, being is a very general category in which God and creatures both participate. The category of being is larger than even God. It's prior to God, right?
0: Yep. And Mm -hmm. I think it's good for us to kind of help people understand the implications of this at this point. What we're saying then is that the term uh, that we're using to refer to ourselves and God is just kind of in our heads, or it's just a word. This is, uh, you know, the term in philosophy is nominalism, which uh, maintains that there are no uh, realities that are extrinsic to ourselves uh, within which we um, understand a term to mean what it means. It's just kind of like something that just exists in our heads. And consequently... um, we can't really say that God is the ground of being uh, yeah. when we use a term being as much as we can just say, well, God is, God is, and we are. And then you yeah. create this, this huge kind of rift or gap between us. Yeah. Whereas uh, the older view is that, no, no, that's not the correct way to think about these things. The older view is being itself is God. Yeah, um, yeah, and you know, reason itself, and, and so forth. So, so many yeah. of the of the kind of contemporary ways of des- of describing, uh, you know, our life uh, in in our in our in our relationship to God are, in some sense, falling far short of the classical old way of thinking about things.
2: That's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the classical Christian vision is something. And again, there's I don't want to get in the whole modern debates and the Protestant debates of Karl Barth with this whole tradition. But uh, just just to talk about classic Christianity, it held something what we would today call sort of an analogy of being. What did that mean? That we don't share being the same way God does. There's an analogy that means it is similar in the sense that we derive our creaturely being from God. We have a real being but because that being is always dependent on God, who is being, our being is not our nature. It's something we always receive as a gift. God is total giver, he's being. We are total gift, we receive our being. We have a being, but we receive it. And so because we do, all of our language is qualified by that analogy. So the fact that I have any goodness, and God is goodness itself, is qualified by the fact that God is goodness itself and if I have any goodness, I have it only in a similar way, limited, finite, and fallen, <laughs> right, in the creaturely sense. Um, and so there is never, so my language when I refer to God, and even scripture's language when it references God is always qualified by this ontology, that that God is the ground of all perfections, is the true meaning of them, but we don't have access to that true meaning. We only have access to the creaturely manifestation of it. But we can use that language to reference God, but it's always qualified by the fact that whatever it means, it doesn't mean what it means when applied to the creature. So there is a mystery and incomprehensibility to our language that ta- that doesn't domesticate God. God is that infinite source of all things to which we know we owe all of our perfections, but we don't have this certitude of, of, of what this means when it applies to God, right? We just know that God is the ground of it, the source of it, and is the one in whom it is is supereminently grounded. Um, whereas this new shift is basically different. It's saying that the attributes of God are not names of God, but they are things that God participates in the same way we do. So God is basically in this circle where there are these different kind of attributes, goodness existence, being, truth, and beauty. God just so happens to indwell them in a larger kind of way, but we're on the same plane as the way we do. So God isn't the source of them in, in, in the ultimate sense. God participates in them and shares them on the same plane of reality. So we as creatures, in a sense, um, when we talk about in this new vision when we talk about God is good and we're good we're basically saying the same thing God is just a lot more a lot better than us than we are he's not so this infinitely is something, different
0: yeah now one of the ways that this kind of kind of where the, you know meets uh our lives uh, is uh in this when it, when we come to the subject of reason yeah um, and this is something that bubbles up at time and again So, uh, for example, uh, people today, when they think about reason, they don't think about its origin. They don't think about, uh, you know, why is it possible for the universe to exist in the way it does uh, and and in such a way that reason actually is sort of bound up with reality. And uh, instead, people think of reason as something that, it's kind of like I got a life of its own, yeah. And w- w- sometimes you'll hear people refer to something uh, known as autonomous reason. Yeah. And what yeah. they mean by that is that you know we can exercise reason in a way that denies God. Well, the Bible it denies that. Uh, that kind of reason in the Bible is referred to as foolishness. Yeah. <laughs> in other words, it's not reason at all that's being exercised reason has its origin in God because in some sense our capacity to participate in reason and use reason is some is, is ultimately dependent upon, uh, this reality that is God. And, uh, in this, and consequently there is no such thing as autonomous reason. That's a non sequitur. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a contradiction. Uh, it just doesn't, it just isn't real. Um, so, but I know what people are getting at. They're they're getting at a particular way of thinking about how they use their reason to sort of calculate, you know, uh, uh, you know, in terms of how they can get the most out of life that they want. But again, scripturally, we have a word for that. It's foolishness.
2: Yeah. Well, that but well, that's right. I mean, and what you have going on here, I'll, I'll, I'll give you this, Glenn. Um, what you have going on here, and what I'm going to get to, is the way in which contemporary reason actually will start to embody this shift. And, and I'll get to that. But Glenn, uh, let me run with what you're going to say. The, the,
1: the thing that's interesting about what Don Scotus does here is that, you know, I, I think maybe the best way to get at, at where I, what what I see as is, is the issue here is to go back to uh, Plato and, well, and Socrates and the, the Euthyphro Dilemma Um which the the question was posed: Do the gods demand uh, goodness, righteousness, because they are righteous, or do they? It, it, the The bottom line of this, I'm not really wording it well. The, the bottom line of this is: Is goodness something that the gods simply will, in which case it's arbitrary? Or is goodness yeah. something that exists outside of the gods that they have to conform to? Yeah. And so th- those were the, the only two choices that Socrates had. And yeah. my, my answer is who dealt this deck? There's another possibility, which That's, is yeah. that goodness is anchored in the character of God himself so that it is neither arbitrary nor above God. The problem with what Scotus does here is that by univocity, he falls into the Euthyphro dilemma. He is forced into Socrates' two choices. And the way he goes is goodness is completely arbitrary. God could have willed things to go any way he wanted to. He he could have removed all the knocks from the Ten Commandments yeah but he dictate he decided uh, as an arbitrary act of will that this is what goodness is going to look like so yeah. good and evil are in fact by this reading arbitrary and that that's really yeah. where scotus has to end up yeah um so that that it seems to me you know even more than reason reason's really important but even more than reason yeah. this highlights the problem with university
2: well, that's right. And you, you kind of thicken the picture because, I mean, uh, the first step was just to move, uh, move God and everything else under a kind of general concept of, of, of being that made them similar. So basically, God is just an infinite type of being the same way creatures are. So the same order of being, just God is infinitely, you know, um, bigger. Um, It's not two ontologies, um, two completely different planes of being is the way classic Christianity held it. What we're dealing with here is one plane of being. God just so happens to be the superior on it. Um, But that's the other part is that this God is not simply doesn't have the full character of the infinite Christian God, but now starts to be represented as sheer power. Um, not governed by any kind of larger nature like goodness or intelligibility. Those things become exhibitions of that power. So, so you have a very complicated picture starting to arise, but, but that complicated picture, I would argue, creates all of the mess we're into today um, because you, you, you've already set the table for a, a secular space and also an arbitrary space um but but we'll, we'll we'll get there so so what happens here is we've returned to a pagan world in which god is not simply the the transcendent source of all being um but is actually one being which is the largest within a circle of being and god's a supreme being an object the way other objects are god has a substance the way that you and me have a substance he just has a distinct substance right that is that transcend it in terms of being um uh qu- quantitatively higher up the chain of being
1: um so yeah, and, so and this gets actually to the third key concept in scotus what he calls hexity uh which <laughs> translates into english as thisness basically <laughs> um and, yeah. and what that what that means is that Everything that exists, the thing that's important about them is the set of unique characteristics of that thing that exists. So yes, God yes. has his particular thisness. Human beings have their particular thisness. Maybe it would be thatness, but whatever. Um, but, well, uh, and, 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 and so on, which is really we're not full-blown nominalists yet but nominalism is the logical conclusion of this yeah, you, that was theory. the other
2: part of that yeah is you get the nominalism too and th- th- what happens is when we make this shift and i know this is confusing to a lot of people that's okay you got to kind of we got to step into it but when this shift happens one of the things that you begin to see is that that all of the fragmentation that we're experienced today is kind of grounded in, in this kind of, um, this, this breakup. So what happens is, um, before you get there, Chris, what we move is from an ontological difference between God and creatures to an epistemological difference, because what happens is, and this actually widens again, this creates the two story world of Kant fact and value, because what happens is, is we're not dealing with two different planes of being now. We're dealing with one plane of being with two stories. And one of those stories is one, because those particulars aren't the same, they actually become radically more different to which all that sameness ends up ends up lending itself to a radical discontinuity. So anyway, um, uh, Chris. Yeah. yeah, I think <clears throat> to help people see
0: where the rubber meets the road here on this, everybody sees... Uh, kind of the, the sort of the outworkings of this, you know with transgenderism and all the craziness we see today. Mm-hmm. But uh, this I think is an important thing for our, for our listeners to understand or to grasp <clears throat> those ivory tower theologians who don't seem to have any have, have their feet on the ground. <laughs> actually, that's what we're dealing with here is
1: it may take
0: 800 years for this to kind yeah. of work itself out. But, but see <laughs> it's, the, the, these things are not irrelevant. These things are not unimportant. These things are not out of touch with reality. In fact, what these things can do is get us in touch with reality or separate us from reality. Yeah. And what we're dealing with a, as a result of sort of the outworking of this, this phenomenon or this crisis in Western thought is all the craziness that you see in the news today, its taproot is... Late Medieval Theology. <laughs> yeah. I know it's yeah. hard to accept, yeah. no, but
1: that's where it's... T- I, I, I just w- want to put in a little bit of a historical note. Um, the ideas originate in this period, I am less than convinced that they have the direct impact that people frequently assign them to. I think they're sort of rediscovered later, because this really only gets um, takes a foothold among Franciscan theologians... Uh, the Dominicans and others don't really go in this direction. Council of Trent doesn't go in this direction. The Protestant, the first generation Protestants, uh, into first this generation stuff, they period, didn't know they, they don't do it. But when you begin moving into a realm where atheism is becoming, or deism even, is becoming more an intellectual cachet for the period, this is going to be something that is going to get well resurrected or rediscovered. So historically, I just got to put that one in. But, but I would describe
0: it, Glenn, as a recessive gene. Possibly. <laughs> so it's, it's, not, it's not as though this thing has just kind of come out of outer space. Right. This well, has been they, with us for a long, long time.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think the way to think it is there is, there is a trail. I mean, what, what, in the Catholic circles, it was called neotomism. They actually ended up moving closer to SCOTUS than they did Tom, Thomas. Um, and Suarez and uh, Cajetan um, uh, you know, um, would, would be two figures. But interestingly, it started to spill over into the Protestant world. And, and I'll give you two examples. This is kind of neat if I, can, if I can locate them quickly. Um, one of the which was Jacob uh, Martini's uh, Partitions of Questions of Metaphysics, a Lutheran theologian, um, in 1615, where he actually developed uh, the metaphysical foundations of the, the Reformation vision and he was already starting to adopt this kind of not, um, this kind of a university into it, where he talked about the standard categories for analyzing language about God, um, and and one of the things you'll see in that is basically his quote that um, created beings are not nothing; they have being, and God has being too, and we can use the word being the same as for God and creatures. So you already see this move of sameness. And then you have Quenstedt. if we remember him, maybe Glenn can fill us up on who Quenstedt is. But very similarly, um, he talks about the way in which being is applied both properly to God and creatures. So you're starting to see it spill over into the, the theological and Protestant world with these figures. I would even say Turretin, who I love in many aspects, but starts to embrace this this univocity, even in their use of
1: analogy, which can get a little complicated. Yeah, the the thing to note is that the Franciscans were particularly strong in Germany. Luther himself uh, was trained under nominalist theologians and so on. So it wouldn't be surprising that it's going to be reemerging or uh, reasserting itself in a German context.
0: Yeah, well, I actually had a... Con- I had a conversation with a young man in my church just the other night, and he was asking the question, can we get from is to ought? (laughs) Now, if you you can put it that way, and you have no theological background, that tells you just how thoroughly Mm -hmm. this way of thinking has filtered out into the churches. And Mm -hmm. I said, well, the only reason why you would ever be able to even separate is from ought is if you're able to entertain the idea that creation itself is unfounded in God. In other words, it's not yeah. a creation at all. <laughs> in yeah. other words, this yeah. this this way of thinking, uh, which imply you know sort of implies that you know there is isness and then there's oughtness and these things don't really relate to each other except in our own wills or in yeah. God's will as He forces the sort for of to forces the issue yeah. upon the world. And by the way, this is one of the areas where I think that um, some well-meaning Christians can go uh, wrong. It, yeah, it's it's not as though God is imposing upon the world something utterly alien to its nature. That's right. C- commands are given.
1: That's it's, right. God
0: is is actually reaffirming the created order of things.
1: Absolutely. Through the commands.
2: Absolutely. It's the. Li- I mean, Russell Kirk gets this completely. Um, that the fact that commandments are liberating because they free us from that which distorts us from our creatureliness. I mean, it, it is a completely this is why I always tell reform guys, you need to stop talking that language of the emphasis, the the exterior imposition of a divine will. I said you're playing right in to an alternative metaphysic than the biblical one, um, even though the language of the Bible is very harsh. Sometimes we understand why, because we're talking life, death, being non-being. Right. Um, but but its language is about the way in which the commandments are a reaffirmation of the gift of creation, and they are stifling that which brings death to it. So it is a life-death matter with the commandments, um, but yet they are not this arbitrary imposition of a will. They are actually that which is, is the gift of liberating us from a, our wills turned inward rather than receiving the gift of our createdness. Um, so, so yeah, it's a very different picture and so, what we do, what we notice is this breaks. I mean, classic Christian vision breaks down opposition and dialectic. There is an opposition of sin, but it is, it does not negate God's God's um, God's action and being. I mean, Christ triumphs over it. Right? He is able to take the finite and and bring it up into um, that which he's he's not conditioned by. Um, but what we have with the with this view is is basically. God has to, you know, we're, we're on the same plane of being. So on the one side, all of our language, basically, that we reply to each other, like, you know, Glenn is good. Chris is good. God is good. God is just good in a, in a, in a bigger way than Chris is good. And Glenn is good. Right. God is he's not gooder. Good. Yeah, <laughs> that's right.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so God is not just good. He's the best.
2: That's right. He's 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 the best, and we're we're kind of not so good. And so you know we can't measure up, and we're crushing us. Where when we understand the classic Christian vision, God is goodness itself, the perfect, the very perfection of any good, to which this this so-called God itself would have to be um, a participant in to have any good whatsoever too. <laughs> Um, God, God is not one more good thing amongst good things, but rather is the source of any good thing that has any goodness. I mean, that's, you know, that, that's kind of where we're going with this. So, so, but in this vision, God is basically the, you know, the best among betters of the same quality, right? Now, um, God is distant because God is, you know, the best amongst, um, you know, goods, but God is 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 definitely not the ground of all goodness. And so in this case, there's there could develop, as you see, a kind of a, a competition which actually does develop. Because if God is on the same plane and we are on the same plane and and then somehow God acts, somehow we've got to back up because our being somehow it, it kind of gets in the way of God's being, right? If you're on the same plane of action and God's action is of the similar sort to yours, then if you don't cooperate or negate or submit, you're in conflict with this this God. Whereas the classic Christian vision is you're on your own order of being. You know, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. trembling. And then the next verse is, for it is God that worketh in you, right? There's no conflict. Your own order of being, you do this. God's own order of being, he's grounded it, right? And and produced it. This view is basically, if you do something, God doesn't. If God does something, you don't, right? And the only way you get anything done is you partner up the same way that we would partner up to get something done, right? Cooperation on the same plane of being. Um, And so eventually you can see how in order to create creaturely freedom from this God who obviously can absorb our space, um, we have to create some opposition. So univocal language, same language, actually lends itself to the other side, what we call equivocal language. That means that our language differs radically from any similarity to God. So what happens is when we need to get distance from a God who is the same so that we have some space, we have to kind of create an opposition. God is this way, opposed to us, but on the same order of being. So we are finite, God is infinite, but infinite on the same order of things. So God is just farther away, not the ground of everything, but farther away where we are closer to ourselves. Um, Chris, go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's, to me, it's the pizza problem.
1: So, yeah, okay, yeah.
0: with the pizza problem, if God gets seven pieces of pizza, that leaves me with one. Yeah. But if I want more pizza, then God has to have less pizza. So God needs to go from seven pieces to five pieces, so that I can have three pieces. And this is the way people kind of think about their relationship to God. That's right. Whether that you know, without realizing that God is the pizza. (laughs) In other (laughs) words, all of God and all of you. You know, God is the pizza, and and that's what you want. You you know, you want to be fed by the one who is the source of your being. I oh, can see, see Glenn is amused.
1: I, 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 I'm <laughs> just thinking about uh, God is the pizza in connection with the Eucharist, <laughs> but, but I don't think we really want to go there. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to go there. This is it's. This is where to, the you analogy don't want to breaks push down. too
2: far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. With well, this is it, but and so now what happens is that because there is a place for positive and negative language and true Christian reference of God. It looks the same sometimes when we do it within this vision. So when we say, you know, of course, you know, God is similar to us in all these ways. God is just the top of the chain. But on the other hand, God is different than us. So there is a kind of oppositional language, just like we talk about, you know, um, God is, you know, infinite. We are finite. Um, God is, you know. You know, um uh, we, we use ne- we can use negative language of God to ca- qualify a positive, but here it's something different.
1: Mm-hmm. go okay, ahead, Glenn. Tom, before you go there, I would say, what what gets really interesting here is I would say not that God is like us, but that we are like God, except yeah. for one thing, which is the incarnation. With yeah. the incarnation, God, for the first time, begins to share a nature with us. And you have to put yeah. it in that order. So yes. just, just, just within classical Christian theism, that's the way you have to yeah. approach this. And one of the great mysteries of the incarnation, it seems to me, is just that point that God now begins sharing our nature rather than the usual thing, which is that we are sort of like him in some way. At that point, he becomes yeah. like us.
2: Yeah, and but I think the same thing governs our incarnation language. For example, I mean, what you have is Christ as one of us. Mm-hmm. And what he does is shares all the similarity, but in in a in a perfect way. Of what it means to be in relation to God. But but Christ in his humanity, God is not like Christ, even though Christ in his humanity is like us. In other words, God does not all of a sudden have deity like the creature in Christ. It's the other way around the creature perfectly now exhibits that similarity the right way. Um, And I think this is what Kalsund is trying to say is, you know, that full divinity, full creatureliness. Um, But all of a sudden, Christ, because of the perfection of his humanity, doesn't all of a sudden, um, you know, and it's what Nicholas Lashley used to tell me. He said the incarnation does not not resolve mystery. It actually compounds it. And I kind of get that there. What he does is he deepens the similarity and difference um in, in in a way that um what what you begin to have going on here is is kind of is it, i mean jesus says it, it much as himself you know he has someone come up to him in his humanity and says you know hey good teacher <laughs> t- tell me this and jesus says look why are you calling me good no one's good but god of course he was recognizing this person didn't see him in his in in the full person that he is Um, but one of the things you have going on there is that very thing is that, you know, there is an inexhaustible source, which is this deity that is not able to be manifest on the level of the creaturely, even though the creaturely does point you to it. So this person saw it yet he stopped where he, he, you know, the, at the veil. Um, and you know, that's kind of the mystery of the veil and the unveiling. Um, but, but you're right. I mean, that, that I think for me, the incarnation solidifies true analogy that what you have here is showing that creation genuinely can reveal in, a, in, in the most perfect way the invisible attributes of God through the visible um, without eclipsing them or exhausting them or somehow becoming necessary for it. Um, but this is what breaks down. I mean, actually, Christology is a great place and point because when this changes, all your conflicts in, in the teaching of the doctrine of Christ arise. Look at the modern world, right? How do we balance deity with humanity, right? Christ has to be canonic. He has to deny his humanity in order for, for the creator somehow to, to enter into time and space, Right. I mean, this is all because you start to develop uh, a view of deity that somehow is like like humanity in in a similar plane of being, and you end up with all these conflicts. And so you end up with one of two things. You either have a deity that crushes the humanity, or you have a humanity that eclipses the divinity, right? um and this is i think the same thing that happens in in the world then either god becomes the the only actor and humanity has no no being or creatureliness has all the being and god basically becomes absorbed into it i think these are the two polarities that breaking away from the classic vision end up with um yeah. and so in th- yeah. the you can think Christologically this way, that, that what does modernity teach in terms of the doctrine of Christ? But one polarity of either, you know, you know, kind of this, this on the one hand, you have this this conflictual dialectical Bardianism that kind of crushes the creaturely with the divinity. Right. Or you have this 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 kind of liberalism that makes the creaturely central and God has to basically absorb and become imminent within it. I'll pause and let you guys kind of run with
1: it. Yeah, I'm I'm struck by thinking back to Athanasius' On the Incarnation that we did a show on a year or so ago, um, where he one of the things he said, which really struck me at the time, was that even while Jesus was in the body, he was the eternal world that upheld everything in the universe. And that really kind of caught my attention um yeah. beca- because if in fact he is the eternal word of god incarnate then while he was on earth he was also holding the galaxies in place
0: yeah that's a rem- that's a remarkable thing to try to uh, sort of you know sort of appreciate um obviously uh i don't think uh, most folks keep those two things in mind at all uh when they think about <laughs> jesus they if if they do think about you know this cosmic Dimension to Christ's work, you know, upholding all things. It's something he did before he was incarnate and then maybe went back on the job (laughs) after he rose uh, and ascended into heaven. But in the meantime, apparently everything was falling apart everywhere in the universe (laughs) because he couldn't do two things at once, you know, in the minds of. But I just don't even think that people go there. In fact, I don't think that people make a connection between Christ the Redeemer and Christ the Creator at all. Mm -hmm. I think that most people uh, think of Christ as redeemer and that the father is the creator. And, and, and even then they're not entirely sure uh, about uh, the relationship of the creation to the father, let alone the relationship of the, Christ, the creation to the son. And that's, and that I think explains a lot of the nonsense that we get everything from, uh, you know, sort of uh, a lot of the pre nutty eschatology that we commiserate about every once in a while, to uh, the kind of pietism that just can't seem to figure out how to connect Jesus to the world you know, through your personal life. Even down to the fact that most people, uh, when they really think about you know, a calling, it's just pastoral work. They can't think about vocation, uh, and it's because they really don't think that Christ has anything to do with anything else except getting our souls into heaven. Yeah.
2: That's
1: yeah. It. Interestingly enough, I've been, I've been teaching for a while on this point that argues that that vision of the gospel is essentially secularism, uh, which says that, you know, in, in its essence, what it says is that religion and government should be separate, which then has the implication that religion and society should be separate, which then results in a privatized gospel. You know, it's about your personal salvation. It's about your personal morality. Maybe a hot button issue like abortion, but for the most part, it has absolutely nothing to do with this world. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean,
2: one of the things you see is that whole secular space opens up with this kind of, this move. I mean, this is one of the things that, you know, you have on the Kyperians will argue for the, the radical, radical orthodox. All these are trying to say basically the same thing when you shift away from a classic Christian um, vision you end up with creating a space for the secular. Here's a great quote. I'm going to read it anyway. I know know some fans have a love-hate relationship with Karl Barth. Some just hate him. Some love him. Um, I, I think Barth was wrong on many things. I think he was wrong on the analogy thing. But because he was engaged with actually thinkers who held to the analogy thing, he had to rethink his thinking. And when he actually rethought his Christology in these debates, he pulled off this line that I think is... It, it, we I wouldn't disagree with on this issue. Listen how he puts God and and Christ and transcendence. He says we may believe that God can and must only be absolute in contrast to all that is relative. That's that's a pagan view. Exalted in contrast to all that is lowly, active in contrast to all suffering, enviable in contrast to all temptation, transcendent in contrast to all immanence. He's talking about this contrastive view of imminence, I mean, of transcendence. He goes, and therefore divine in contrast to everything human, right? If you're going to be divine, then you're in conflict with human, human conflict with divine. He goes, but such beliefs are pagan. He's exactly right. By the fact that God does, in fact, be and do this very thing in Jesus Christ, Glenn's point. By doing this, God shows himself to be more great and rich and sovereign than we had ever imagined. He is absolute, infinite, exalted, active, impassable, transcendent, but he is all these things as Lord. And in such a way that he embraces all these opposites and of these concepts, even while he's superior to them, his particular presence in the man Jesus is itself a demonstration of his perfection. His omnipotence is that of a divine plenitude of power in the fact that, as opposed to any abstract omnipotence, it can assume the form of weakness and impotence and do so as omnipotence triumphing in this form. In other words, he can become poor and show his plenitude of power because he's not conditioned by the creation to be the power that he is. And I think that, I mean, I think that beautifully sets off the contrast with this pagan view, which with the pagan view is, if if Christ is gonna become incarnate, we're entering into a complication and conflict of things in which um, the two natures of Christ, is just it's, it's just a problem. They're in competition with each other. And so for Christ to act humanly, somehow is in conflict, conflict with him to act divinely. Um, and then likewise, but let me get to kind of where I'm going with this. So what happens is we end up using a conceptual frame in which we're interpreting God and everything else from a creaturely point of reference. As, as I experience things and I think things are meaningful, therefore, God must be the same as that. So if I have certain needs psychologically, God becomes the therapist's answer to my needs. If I have certain ideals and certain um, wishes of justice and everything else, God becomes sort of the the underwriter of my cause. As Feuerbach said, we take our creaturely attributes, project them onto the heavens, and then create, create a God out of them. So so what, what do you get with when you make this shift? You get two things. Either God is basically like us, but just a superior version of us, or God is opposite to us to where he negates us. Those are the two kind of pictures we get. So pure one-to-one language, univocity, or complete oppositional language, God is nothing like us. And this is where we go with figures like Immanuel Kant, and those traditions in which anything that is familiar, univocal, is within our world of senses. Anything that goes beyond that is equivocal. We can't know it. And therefore, it's just a projection of language. And therefore, we, we better not say anything about it. The difference between the world of fact and the world of value. Um, and, and that's that that's what we end up creating from this. And so we we then we have what we call autonomous. Spheres, right? Um, that's that's the other byproduct of this. Because if each particular thing um, is able to ha- share in the same kind of reality of things, then there is no difference to actually qualify it, other than the one that I assert about myself. And so it becomes really a conflict of differing kinds of powers. I mean, that's that's what you end up with eventually. Um, and you know, that's a whole that, that's a whole another thing. So what what do you get here? You you really get the flattening of language. You get a hyper-literalism in reference to God and everything else. And then you actually create a new set of oppositions if you're going to create any difference. But that opposition has no real great way of unifying anything. And so this is really what we get into with the the modern world. Um, I mean, one of the things you think about with language in particular, think about Scripture, for example. So... Classical, the classical Christian vision was one that was very rich in terms of language because the whole creation was a, a chock full of meaning. Therefore, it was a symbol system, not only referring to itself, but referring to God in higher things. So you could use it because it was not idolatrous because it was always qualified by the creator creature distinction. Well, what happens now is when we think of the literal sense of the text, We tend to read that strictly in the familiar, ordinary, um, that which is accessible basically through historic critical analysis. And so meaning now is on this one plane. And if we're going to interpret God and God's relation to us and our relation to each other, it's all within this one flat plane of meaning. And so what we begin is we create the conditions for the modern world and then the postmodern world. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, I, w- I just finished up uh, uh, Barfield's Owen Barfield's uh, Saving the Appearances. <clears throat> read it years ago. Yeah. Uh, now I'm reading it. I'm reading it with uh, a lot more insight because I'm, you know, at a place in life where I know a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one of the things that he does in Saving the Appearances he refers to what he talks about as a refers to as original participation. Then he talks about sort of the medieval period. Uh, and then gets to something he's trying to point us to, which is what he refers to as final participation. And you know, we talked about this when we looked at the uh, the article by Lou, uh, Lou Marcos uh, over and touched on it a little bit. But one of the things he said in in uh, you know, saving the appearances that Lou doesn't get into too much, is the the, the, the world itself was uh, understood as being representational. In other words, yeah. when we use language. We, we know that we're representing or representing something right but yeah. what are we referring to well we're referring to what we think is sort of the, the baseline the physical world reality itself or whatever but what the but p- what people in the classical world and the medieval world thought is actually the that thing that we think of as like the baseline is actually itself another representation in other words <laughs> it's a representation that's referring to unseen realities. So when yeah. we speak, our words participate, this is original yeah. participation, in that representation of unseen things as they are expressed in the physical world. So for them, it wasn't as though an analogy or even an allegory was like some kind of arbitrary human act. That's that right. They were sort of like in our heads making an association that's not real. What they thought they were doing was actually just recognizing the, the connection that already exists. And yeah, by the way, that, I agree with them.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Glenn, go ahead.
1: Yeah. Um couple a couple of things here. Uh first of all, I really sort of wanted at, at a little earlier to start talking about the Islamic vision of Allah who mm-hmm. who is transcendent, but for whom it is impossible to have an incarnation it is impossible for him to suffer. It is impossible for Christ to actually be crucified because this would be below his dignity. Yeah, I, I think yeah. that's that's a rather that's a rather interesting angle on this that would be worth more exploration. But I don't have uh, I haven't really thought this through, so I'm not sure where to go with it. Well, there's a there's there's a great book before you move ahead there,
0: Glenn. There's, there's a book entitled uh, uh, the um, something related to. The, how how Islam or the Muslim world lost its mind? I can't I can't remember the title of it, but it it has it deals with this very thing uh, and how n- the nominalism that has kind of in, have, has come to characterize the West uh, pr- probably has its origins in a kind of fundamentalist reaction to yeah. the influence of Aristotle within the world. Yeah, of Yeah, that's right. I think so that's right. so they're rejecting Aristotle. And they are. This is this is the birth of uh, you know Muslim fundamentalism or Islamic fundamentalism. And so anyway, but but that's one of these days I'll I'll remember the name name of that book. Yeah, that would be worth (laughs)
1: looking into. The other thing though is that my I've got to I've got to give credit to Peter Wallace, who is my pastor at Michiana Covenant Presbyterian Church. Um, he has, um, he's been doing a, a set of adult Sunday school classes on the church fathers, and he's talking about patristic exegesis. And although he didn't quite put it this way, I think it's worth noting that Jesus tells us two things about scripture that ought to guide our interpretation of it. The first of them is that You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, and these are the things that speak of me. So if you read scripture without a Christological hermeneutic, you are not reading it the way Jesus did. Yeah. The second thing is um, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So then this is from St Augustine if you do not exegete scripture in such a way that it leads to love you're doing it wrong. So yeah, if it doesn't yeah. lead to Jesus and if it doesn't read lead to love you're doing it wrong according to Jesus. Yeah. Which <laughs> means that our literal approach to you know historical literal or grammatical literal whatever you want to call it approach to exegesis is not the way Jesus told us to do it? That's, that's right. I think:
0: that, I think that at some point it would be great for us to explore uh, kind of the way love has drifted in the modern mm. world to mean certain things to people that yeah. Jesus didn't mean, right. or Augustine didn't mean. But uh, I do want to just note, I found the book It's called "The Closing of the Muslim Mind" mm. by Robert R. Riley. I think you, mm. you're familiar with that that uh, author, Glenn, but its enti- the subtitle is How Intellectual Suicide Created the Modern Islamist Crisis. Wow. And he goes back into uh, sort of the theological uh, battle that was going on in medieval Islam that led to uh, kind of the the loss of the civilization that so many people in the Muslim world uh, you know, remember fondly, but actually undermine today. So yeah. when you think about the great achievements intellectually that we can attribute to, uh, you know, the to, to Muslim civilization, they were already, um, they had already rejected the very kind of intellectual bases by which those achievements occurred yeah. by the time. Uh, the West encountered uh, Islam, so so by the time the Crusades come around, there Islam is already in decline in, intellectually. Mm-hmm. Anyway, just a, a fascinating book.
2: Yeah, it. I mean, it shows, but it shows you what happens when the, those you know you you unleash will apart from you know a, a fuller fuller vision of deity. Period. Much less the the full Christian sense. Um, but one of the things I think is worth pursuing is some, something I've been reading a lot about is that. With this dissolution uh, from the classic Christian vision to to this changed vision um, was actually not only this kind of establishment of a one to one language or a radical oppositional language, depending on how you emphasized things, but you know I mentioned this de-symbolization of the universe, and I think this is really something we've been trying to recapture with Tolkien, with with Lewis, and the these you know this kind of um, you know the Platonic heritage of of, of Christianity. It, because here, I mean, kind, you know, when you talk about the literal sense, you're talking more a fuller sense of literal, which can include the liturgical and the analogical, because analogical meaning is really the ground meaning, not univocal, not one to one. Matter of fact, if I do an act and Glenn does an act, Wittgenstein understood fully well. He used the term family resemblance, but he was retrieving analogical language. He understood they weren't the same thing right? Um, he understood that they were within a family of things. And so and so um, so this kind of hyper literalism that even a lot of the fundamentalist Christians have adopted is actually buying into a different ontology than the biblical one. And by doing that, you're actually taking the meanings of terms. And I'm not saying run to to the alternatives. I'm just saying you're actually taking the meanings of terms and driving them by a under set of understanding of things that are grounded more in your experience and in your culture and your time than you actually are dealing with the realities that the biblical language is dealing with when you interpret things. And so the classical vision was liturgical, analogical. Um, it could use a wide range of language to communicate things. When you shift to this new vision, it becomes um, representational and scientific right? That is what everything has one, a one plane, one plane sense on one plane of being, whether it's referring to God or not. And so it is disenchanted in the sense de-symbolized because it is only referring to one kind of plane of reality. And so because of that, you've, you've kind of ripped, um, the full web of meaning, um, from, from, the biblical text much less our communication with each other and so it's easy also to discard this one plane of meaning when people like in our postmodern culture who who move away from university to equivocation opposition to gra- gain their own freedom right i need to oppose you to create space for me what they end up doing is recognizing there is more than one plane of meaning but they do it in the subjective Right, they move it up into the, the 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 place in which their self, their particular self, interprets reality, and that is more real than kind of the biological or one dimensional. Um, so what we've done is we created conditions here by making theological shifts that created a whole different metaphysical vision, which has led us to the problems we're dealing with.
0: Yeah. And I guess the the question that, that occurs to me at this point, and we should probably begin to move toward conclusion. Maybe this is a good way to maybe make a sweat segue into another show for you, Tom, but what do we do about it? You know, <laughs> how, how do we, you know, I think, you know, uh, for many of us, uh, the yeah. inklings are where we go, you know, yeah. because they, they understood this, you know, back in the early 20th century, they, they, they were way ahead of everybody on this and they were, uh, doing the things that they did because they were speaking to us. I, I really do think that I, I think yeah. that they knew that the, that the world that they lived in wasn't going to hear what they had to say. Yeah. And they were, they were speaking uh, to us uh, further down the line, who were kind of experiencing the the chaos and the, and the insanity and the meaninglessness uh, everywhere we look Uh, And that's why they're so popular in so many circles, even outside Christian circles, particularly Tolkien. Um, But uh, what do you what do you have to say? I mean, what do we do about it besides read uh, the Inklings?
2: (laughs) Yeah, Um, well, I think they're a good starting place. I mean, I think one of the things I, I, I think the way forward is and it's kind of what we've been up to is is it's a combination. One is retrieval. We need to actually immerse ourselves in the Christian imaginary to use Charles Taylor's term. To actually think from from not just the scriptures, but the whole the whole culture we've been given as Christians, which we call kind of tradition in the lower T sense of the word, right? It's not the same as Scripture, but it's the byproduct of people who read Scripture. And then Christian culture, which produced these these sources by the imagination that's the byproduct of sanctified reasoning, right? Biblical reasoning led to all different things: hospitals, art, music literature it also reconnected with the whole of creation past literatures mythologies and all of this and read them in a new light so we need to retrieve this comprehensive christian vision that's one Um, we need to be in conversation with our with with you know all the saints across time um and, and i think we need to also not lose sight of the reformation dimension which is renewal so we need to take these things that, that may have had their cells bent towards something that wasn't fully Christian and try to retrieve them and orient them towards the full Christian vision, as, as we would see it through the kind of re- reform lens that we read things in. So there's the retrieval. Um, you could even say, in a sense, you know, the Renaissance, if you will. I mean, we need Erasmus in order to get the translations going, Right. And then the then the Reformation, but but not as an opposition to these things, but as a renewal of these things. I think it's an exciting time to really draw off of the riches of our our faith and its traditions um, to to really gain a wisdom and and imagination bank to to offer an alternative for what we're doing today. Maybe and that that would be my kind of you know first answer to that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I would. I would go to. I think it was Lewis who said that that um, reason is the organ of understanding, but imagination is the organ of meaning. And mm. I I would really like to stress what you said about imagination that we need to recover a fully formed, biblically informed imagination about the world because it's much bigger than what we see. And if we limit ourselves to what we can see, we never get to the things we can't. And the things that we can't see are things like meaning and purpose and destiny and all of those things. So we need a robust recovery of imagination along with this.
0: Yeah, you know, kind of as we wrap up, two authors who come to mind on that subject, of course, are Coleridge, Sammy Taylor Coleridge, who's had a lot to say about and he was a believer and uh, did a lot of important work on the imagination. And then George MacDonald, yeah, who also addressed it. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that maybe one of these days we could get Malcolm guide on the show. Talk about Coleridge; um, he'd yeah. be a great, a great uh, person to talk to on on this whole matter of the imagination. Um, anyway, we should probably wrap it up. Hey, folks, uh, thank you for your support of the theology podcast. We do appreciate your. Your, your, your thoughts and the notes you send us and the financial gifts that you send our way. Uh, those gifts are appreciated. They do keep the show going. Uh, we can be supported through uh, the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network with a membership that uh, you can uh, get there and you can designate the Theology Podcast as your podcast of choice. Uh, there are other ways you can give. Uh, you can do that through Anchor Podcast. You can go right to our website, Um, And uh, all those things that are helpful, all those gifts that come in all those ways are great. Uh, We also uh, want you to know that we're continuing to think about the future and things that we're gonna be doing. Uh, We are continuing to uh, get suggestions for places to have a live show when we do our Southeast tour. Uh, We're looking to the fall and uh, we haven't made up any any decisions yet about uh, where those locations will be. Uh, So if you want to be considered for that, just send us an email through the Theology Podcast contact page, and we'll keep uh, that in mind. Anyway, I guess that's all I have to say, and uh, we probably can say goodbye. All right.
2: Bye-bye now. Bye now. Bye. Bye now.